This show is sponsored by FIS. Welcome to Breaking Banks, the number one global fintech radio show and podcast. I'm Brett King. And I'm Jason Henricks. Every week since 2013, we explore the personalities, startups, innovators, and industry players driving disruption in financial services. From incumbents to unicorns, and from cutting-edge technology to the people using it to help create a more innovative, inclusive, and healthy financial future. I'm J.P. Nichols, and this is Breaking Banks. This week, Jason takes us back into the world of Bass, banking as a service, then into the world of deep tech. First up is Josh Williams from Seattle Bank, talking about Bass's second era, the next iteration of Bass, embedded finance, and what banks have to get right if they want to compete in this space. Then he talks with Tricia Martinez, Managing Director of Techstars Industries of the Future Accelerator, along with Firkin Aris, co-founder of Spikey.ai, which is using artificial intelligence to generate insights by analyzing language, emotion, even nonverbal cues to drive more effective communication and collaboration. Two weeks ago, Kia and Alex and I did the, the hot takes. And lucky for Josh, I did not send him the hot sauce for our hot wings and hot takes. But I think it will be every bit as spicy as we get into, you know, Kia had set up that great paradigm for us to think of that first wave, which is, you know, the bank corps and the metabanks that were the first into the banking as a service as we know it now. We we're just kind of inventing it then. They ended up in a penalty box. Then we had the second era. These are the banks, the uh, cross rivers, the coastal communities. Uh, I would actually put Seattle Bank in there, Josh. I know you would say you're kind of late to the era, but we'll get into that. Now we're in this era where everyone says they're going to be doing banking as a service. And if you can jump into the Wayback Machine for us, Josh, when you as Seattle Bank first got into banking as a service. I'd love to hear about the thought process as you looked at you said, okay, to do this and to do this well, we're gonna have to go build some things. And you guys have done a tremendous amount of building. Walk us through what that planning process was like. Yeah, I think to start, um, you know, we, uh, this did start probably five years ago, actually, as we were looking at the, uh, really the tech strategy and the tech needs of us executing in the, in our primary business at the time, which we think of as a boutique bank. It's mostly serving high value customers. This could be private banking, commercial banking, um, et cetera. And we knew we needed to have access to a different and more scalable and configurable tech stack and really have ownership of that. And so in the process of figuring out what those components needed to look like and how that was going to come together, quickly started to recognize that that same infrastructure, once it was sound and in place, and especially able to solve for those high value, high risk transactions that our, our sort of earlier business really dealt with, that would bring a really robust structure to then support totally different ways of going to market, mainly what we now call banking as a service or embedded banking. And so is the recognition that as you move to cloud, as you move to real time, as you move to um, open API, uh, that gives you the ability to go out and um, you know, obviously partner in different ways. And um, so we saw that from a technical standpoint, how that had opened up ways to create new channels. But we also brought this with this, um, you know, years of banking experience in terms of recognizing that 
having a technological solution, if it's not integrated with a regulatory framework, a risk framework, and an operational framework, you know, ultimately isn't really a durable business. And so as we started to look at how to go commercialize that from the start, we said we need to solve for what we think of as sort of the big three um, from a viability standpoint of technical possibility. Is it, you know, is it legal? Can we all make money? And then at the end of it is whoever you're partnering with solving a problem for the, for the client or for the market. Well, let's talk about like just the magnitude of that re-architecture. How did you actually go incorporate? Because you would talk quite a bit, you know, rip and replace typically isn't very viable to like fundamentally re-architect the bank and do it. How did you approach that? Yeah, um, the way we ended up doing it was first, uh, we started by making a conversion on the digital banking side for essentially our retail bank. And um, that brought immediate um, benefits to our customers in terms of security and ease of use. But what it also did is meant that when we then made the core conversion about two years later, the customer in- impact was much more, uh, was was a lot less, right? Because it was the behind the scenes. Were- Exactly. Now, as any of that's easy for me to say, as anyone who was on the tech side and on the compliant on the customer service side knows, there was certainly impact mainly around things like card, but it was significantly easier given that we'd already made the, the UI switch for customers. Then uh, because we did move to, we moved to Finastra's Phoenix core and, and the key criteria around that cloud-based, it's in Azure. Um, they had a commitment to open banking. Um, they had a commitment and functionality that was real time. Um, that allowed us to start bringing in new products and features uh, directly to that. Sometimes that's losing using their solutions, but in other cases, and we recently went live with a new product um, that's built on using a, a best-in-class underwriting engine that's not Finastra's, but we were able to integrate that into the Finastra LOS because it's, um, again, it supports real-time uh, credit underwriting, real-time customer um, response, offers, things like that. And so um, in that sense, it was uh, obviously the conversion is always a, a big shift, right? It's hard to call that incremental, but what we've, what we've because we converted to the right technology, it's allowed us to be more incremental and now be more modular in what pieces we use for what use case. Well, and now applying this to the banking as a service and the integrations you do with the, the startups you work with, and tell us first a little bit, how, what's your approach to banking as a service? Who do you tend to partner with and be the bank for? And how has that evolved? Yeah, I mean, we think of it, uh, to us, we call it partner banking. Um, and uh, and the idea is that we're working with fintechs, marketplaces, and brands um, that want to provide financial services to their customers or end users. In our mind, the fintech space is a little bit more of what I think the market describes as banking as a service. You know, the fintech is a financial brand. They want to own as much of the relationship and the product as they can, um, but they still need access to uh, a regulated entity, payment rails, et cetera. Um, versus on the marketplace or brand side. Generally, they want to have much less involvement in the financial product. They don't want to be a financial brand. And so in that case, they're also looking for, I think, much more advisory, much more guidance and um, sort of, um, if not handholding, just somebody to just basically drive more of the overall product creation around the financial solution. And so that's where we think of that as more of embedded banking. Um, you know, we see a lot of opportunity out there, both on the loan and deposit side, as well, of course, on card and payments. And um, I think in general, our view is banks already have such an important inherent regulatory and capital advantage. Number one, uh, number two, banks have to make money. Like unlike a startup, we can't just run losses. Um, and um, 
You're not going to so go to market it, and raise $200 million of you know, <laughs> tier one equity to, to burn through? Yeah, yeah, it doesn't work out for our shareholders or the regulators. Um, and so, and then the other then, so based on that, then just our opportunity cost is much different. And so from my standpoint, I don't think the model supports as well saying the sort of the AWS, give us your credit card and we'll spin up, you know, your instance. That model, I think, makes sense for the non-bank BAS providers, which I think are great. They're cool businesses, interesting technology, right? But a bank, I think, is already a step above that in terms of counterparty strength, in terms of what they're bringing to table, in terms of access to capital and those other things. And so as a result, to us, it just makes sense to be much more targeted um, to say, who are parties that are really gonna value that difference in a partner? And so for us on the, you know, the more established FinTechs or neobank size, those, uh, side, those are gonna be parties that are saying, hey, we do have reputation risk. They have started to appreciate the regulatory scrutiny and they, you know, it's no longer just speed to market. They now have to contend with these other factors that of course bank always have. And so they have a very different view than that just brand new startup in the garage. That's like, hey, let's just see if we can get this going. So I think banks rightly, or certainly we think it makes sense to be on that side where in the case of those established uh, fintechs, they have that appreciation or working with marketplaces or brands that, again, think about counterparty risk, think about reputation risk. And they just recognize like, hey, in the long run, uh, everybody wants to get to market fast. No question about it. Right. But in the long run, um, they also know that that's not at any cost. They have way too much franchise value at risk to not have the right player and the right approach. Well, I mean, we could do this move fast and break things approach in a world where capital was cheap and seemingly infinite, and it valued growth more than business model and more than, uh, I'd say, regulatory prowess, right? Um, and in a world where regulators were relatively standoffish, when we look at it, so those two things have changed dramatically right now, right? So regulators are paying attention, you know, the OCC especially, you know, has been very vocal, and I think being um, proactive about it is a good thing, signaling the direction they intend to go. Um, and obviously the capital markets have changed for a lot of these fintechs. How has that impacted how you think about the, the world? I, you know, I think in general, um, you know, I, I think most bankers and I think um, certainly some of the lead players in this space have already been thinking about this, right? So I think, um, I guess that was sort of to your point, uh, you know, I guess that second wave where the players have said, hey, let's proactively go out and build this market, but recognize how would you build it more proactively? I mean, the, the people that created the space, the players that created the space or the category, I mean, what, what an amazing opportunity. It's great that they did it. I, I don't, I'm not, in, I'm not criticizing them in, in hindsight, right? I think that what you then got is players that said, okay, now let's given given the benefit of being able to see how that's gone, let's build this right. And in that sense, I think most of the regulatory guidance and comments that are coming out as of late um, are things that for the most part, credible players are already thinking a ton about, have really smart people working on and are working really closely with their partners to say, we have to build these standards. So in that sense, I think a lot of this is good and that it's probably providing more clarity in general. That makes it easier to think through for examiners and for the banks working with their examiners on how to make sure that we're you know, sort of meeting the right standards. I think it helps bring more realistic expectations to fintechs or partners that before it showed up and be like, hey, can we get a bank up and running in you know, a couple of weeks? You know, weeks not, first it was months, not years, then it was weeks, not months, then it was whatever days or minutes, not whatever. So I think you have a little more realism brought into some of the some of the fintechs or partners that want to do it. And um, you know, and then I think that just helps then the market just operate a little bit more realistically. Yeah, the the good dose of realism. I think is important that it isn't that oh, we're actually seeing a contraction both in the space 
and from valuations, but we're actually seeing a return to what normal actually was. I think we can agree things were a little bit overheated and a little bit crazy when there was a neobank for everything. Um, and you know, now we're back to a focus on product market fit. Yeah, and I think, um, I just think we saw a lot of spaces where, right, I, I think, I guess the underlying assumption was here's somebody who's disrupted a single function, right? Let's just take uh, Robin, and I'm not an expert on it, and I don't have anything against them, right? But okay, they clearly disrupted that space. I guess the valuation assumption was because they've disrupted the space, they're going to quickly become sort of the B of A, right? They're now going to meet every yeah. single financial service need. They're going to keep this client acquisition trend. Uh, you know, I guess if you sort of took that logic and this is a winner takes all, maybe you could start to put some realism into that type of evaluation. But, you know, I think those of us in the space, you know, it's, well, one, it's very hard to even disrupt that one space as they saw. And two, to then think you're going to now sort of rebundle and attract and acquire and, and maintain all of that other wallet that those assumptions are, you know, I'm not saying somebody can't do it, but I do think that this idea of like, hey, is something a feature or is it a product or is it a business? You know, there's very different, uh, very different levels of sort of gravity you have to overcome for each one of those. And so I agree with you. I think we're seeing a lot of cases where it's like, okay, this is probably a great product or, or maybe just a great feature, right? Well, I mean, I mean, building on that framework, if it's a great feature, it should not be a startup. It should be attached to somebody else's business that has an existing product that can enhance it, but that product already makes sense on its own. And if it's a great I product- agreed and, I agree. Yeah. And in fairness, right, to banks, like, and it's like, well, then why haven't banks done it, right? I mean, hey, early pay with Chime, like, that's a great feature. Why did none of us think about it for a long time? Like, we were happy to roll it out. I think we're still one of the first and few banks that did. But, but even that, like, Hey, uh, that that's an impressive like innovation that no one did. So I mean, in fairness, that's not to say the features don't matter. But yeah, I agree with you. In the long run, you still have to have a business model around it. And I think similarly in BMPL, obviously that that space, um, you know, again, it, it created a great customer experience. All sorts of creative ways that really retailers are thinking about how they change e-commerce, how they interact with their customers. But anybody that was a consumer lender coming into that would have been like, yeah, well, somebody still has to pay for credit losses and financing charges. And, you know, if there's a model there, great, great UI. <laughs> Let's figure out yeah, the financial yeah. model. Great customer experience on giving you money is one thing. Great customer <laughs> experience on getting repaid on that money is a completely yeah. different thing. Right. Yeah. Um, PPP had really a viral adoption for a reason, right? Yeah. Well, and yeah, no wonder the NPS is so high. It turns out giving, you know, small businesses free money without recourse is a great model for getting money out that getting paid back or, you know, the security around it. So I'm curious, you know, building on that for a second, when we think about the brands and this idea of, you know, if I have an existing business, adding a product to it makes a ton of sense. And a lot of times, you know, almost everything touches commerce in some form or function, or it isn't really a business, right? How do you think about this idea of embedded banking? Are you approaching the brands or do you have brands coming to you saying we want to build? And it, you hinted at it that you know you have a lot more control and influence and advisory. So how much are you kind of building and operating, you know, from the product perspective for them? Yeah. Um I'd say it's a little both. I mean, one right now, honestly, we're we have we would love to be more in the market, just proactively going after brands, and because we just think there's so much opportunity out there. I think the embedded space is much bigger than the Bass space. If you think about Bass as more serving fintechs versus embedded as going out to these brands and marketplaces, 
So we are not spending anywhere near as much time as I'd like to be out there. And I'd love to be doing more selling uh, along those lines. I think in, uh, yeah, so we we recently launched a partnership uh, with, uh, this is with a small business provider. So they have a vertical where they're providing like a pretty tight set of services. But part of that requires essentially money movement. And, um, you know, on the one hand, not super sexy, right? On the other hand, it's pretty critical to their ability to have velocity and control over their customer experience. And so their ability to bring us in as a partner and say, hey, let us basically provide this transaction solution hugely improves like throughput times, control their ability to manage MPS for their users. Um, and so, you know, they clearly knew their business really well, um, but we were able to say, well, these are all the things that have to happen for this to work for us. And um, if if we have alignment on that, um, we'd love to work with you. And, they, and in their case, they were like, yeah, absolutely. Like they work with a fair amount of fiduciary obligation or in the fiduciary space or adjacent to it, I guess, as a third party administrator. So they appreciated that. They wanted to make sure anything they were touching was going to have, you know, sort of gold standard um yeah, security, compliance, and all those things. Um, so definitely an iterative process there. Um, you know, I think, uh, and I think, again, I do think there's more both need and opportunity than in that case to be really thoughtful about how you approach and to say, again, not that we're never saying we know their business better than them or their users better than them. It's just us being able to, how can we learn as much as we can from them about their business and their users and what they're trying to solve for? And then, you know, thoughtfully, uh, say, okay, now here's how we can ascend. Here's how we see you could solve that need with this sort of configuration of financial solutions. And, and yeah, this, I think it becomes definitely collaborative in that, in that space. So as we're running out of time here, what are the non-obvious things that you would point to someone looking to build these kinds of partnerships, right? Like alignment around the importance of compliance is one and the importance of user experience. But you know, what have you learned you know, through the school of hard knocks here that you wouldn't have expected going in? Yeah, I, I think um, I think in the earlier days, there was uh, you know, a lot of uh, a lot of the the fintech ideas were probably more issues of like this is really cool feature or product, but we don't see a business there, right? So I think that was um, I think that was maybe a little bit of disillusionment from the early days of like oh fintechs are like taking over the world. Um, I, now I think it's more just really trying to. Um, I think it does mostly the most of the surprise, if you will, comes back on the compliance side, just recognizing, you know, in terms of uh, not, you know, there's, there's obviously just what are the boxes we have to check in terms of um, sort of this pretty clear regulatory items, but then how do you make sure that you're meeting it for more of a consumer protection side? And I think, um, you know, not many industries, maybe healthcare would probably be the exception to this. I just don't think many industries are, are accustomed to thinking on anywhere near the depth that in financial services we have for many you know, for a long time dealt with that. And so I think that continues to be, you know, the, the one that is, uh, that, that is so, that is most often sort of left, left out or left out too late or just under, underweighted. Yeah. I think that's a really important point, you know, to underscore this idea of meeting this, the minimum standard. Yes. You've met the standard and checked a box, but getting out ahead of it and really thinking about, you know, if, not mandated or formal guidance, consumer protection still matters in a way that you need to be thinking about, you know, where the puck is going, not just about, you know, what it says today. 
Yeah, I think that's right. And, you know, we, we recently sat down on a practice basis with our, um, some of our key examiners and said, Hey, we want to give you an update on where we're at, some things we're working on. And, you know, the reality is like, sure, as the tech evolves, it takes regulators some time just to follow up and see where it is and see how they're going to sort of respond to that. But they always get there, right? And they're definitely always, and we're seeing that now. And and again, the approach is thoughtful. If you look at um, Comptroller Shoes um, comments, those questions all were pretty good questions, right? And so, uh, I, yeah, I think to your point, it's recognizing that, hey, everyone is trying to figure out on some of these, it is somewhat interpretive because we're trying to yep. figure out how do we make sure we met that standard of care, not just the, the box checking. And it definitely requires more thought. Fantastic. Well, thanks for taking the time, Josh, to share your thoughts as one of the leaders in the space and look forward to seeing what's next, especially as you continue to expand in the world of embedded banking. Yeah, you're welcome. Great to be here. You may already have payments embedded into your software platform, but do you have flexibility around how those payment experiences are created? What about control over your pricing or ability to use your own branding? Chances are you probably don't. Discover WorldPay for Platforms, a payments platform that puts you in control and puts your software customers first. This all-in-one payment facilitation platform offers more than just embedded payments. With WorldPay for Platforms, take advantage of a full set of solutions, including professional managed and advisory services to enhance your business. Make your software even better with a solution that easily integrates and adapts to your needs, helping you create experiences beyond payments. Discover the possibilities you can unleash with WorldPay for Platforms. Visit fisglobal.com slash worldpayplatforms to get started today. Hello, listeners. I'm Brett King, the host of Breaking Banks. Together, myself and Dr. Richard Petty have recently released our latest best-selling book, The Rise of Techno-Socialism. We look at how inequality, artificial intelligence, and climate change are going to shape our world moving forward. During the pandemic, the wealth of the world's billionaires ballooned. The richest 1% added $1.6 trillion to their wealth, meaning that they own more wealth than the bottom 90% of Americans today. Unemployment skyrocketed during the pandemic, but artificial intelligence could disrupt up to 80% of the jobs today. These new industries we are creating will face labor shortages because we aren't training our students with the right skills. By 2050, we'll need to produce 70% more food to feed the 9 billion inhabitants of the planet, but we lost 40% of our farmland to erosion and pollution in the last 50 years. By 2050, 570 global cities face inundation from sea rise. Miami, Guangzhou, New York, Calcutta, and Shanghai are just the top five cities. If you want to know more about the solutions to these problems, check out The Rise of Techno-Socialism, our latest best-selling book. You can get it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or go to riseoftechnosocialism.com to find out more. Welcome to the future. Trisha, I can't believe this is the first time I'm actually ever having you on Breaking Banks. But yeah. Trisha Martinez, who leads uh, the future of industry accelerator for Techstars, longtime fintecher. In fact, that's how she and I got to know each other 
was when I was a mentor to one of her startups, which, I mean, how many names did you guys go through before launching? <laughs> Three or four. <laughs> in South Africa. Yes. Thank you for that. And we went through the Barclays Accelerator experience together in the UK. And now look at you leading a Techstars program and yeah. excited to have one of your portfolio companies uh, and have Furkan Eris on to talk about what Spike, Spiky AI is solving. And really the emphasis of this show is, is technology is transforming industry itself and a lot of the older industries, how we think about money engagement, even customer relationships, this idea of embedded is beginning to change. And Trisha, I'd love to kick off with you, right? So you stood up this program for Techstars. What surprised you as you stood it up and you, you, know, you can say future of industry and everyone will nod their head. Then if you ask someone to define it, I think everyone would freak out and go, I have no idea what that actually means. Is that a fair <laughs> assumption? I, absolutely. I think we, so I like to throw the term around deep tech and that's a, everyone has a different definition for deep tech, but basically um, technologies that are addressing deep engineering and science driven problems. And so I came full circle back to Techstars. You worked with me going through Techstars Barclays in London, built a fintech company um, in Sub-Saharan Africa. I then went to the federal government as a presidential innovation fellow where I was detailed to the Department of Energy working across our 17 national labs, which is how I fell in love with the deep tech space. You know, how can you not geek out over what the future of technology will look like? Artificial intelligence, quantum computing, climate technology, biotech, all these different technologies that have the potential to revolutionize industry, solve really big problems that our country and our world are up against. Um, And so I just fell in love instantly, went to Techstars because the biggest national lab was launching an accelerator, which was crazy. They wanted to invest in all things future of technology because they have the advanced facilities and people who are helping drive those technologies forward. And so it's been honestly like such an incredible experience. One, coming to Tennessee, a small small ecosystem when we think about innovation and startups, but they have all the assets in a innovation hub that you would need. Huge national lab, so high, high concentration of academics, technologists, PhDs, a huge university, University of Tennessee, p- pumping out talent. Um, huge energy players like Tennessee Valley Authority, the biggest public utilities in the country. So, so much is happening in this region. We just needed to attract more startups here. And so the thesis has really been, how can we find um, the most passionate, uh, game-changing founders, technologists, scientists who are building the future technologies that will drastically disrupt industries. Um, And so the first year we rolled out, we had incredible companies. We looked at thousands of of startups across the globe, to be honest, and we narrowed it down to 10, brought them to Tennessee. Um, Furcon, one of the founders of Spiky AI, was one of our companies, and it's been such a pleasure working alongside him, getting to know him and his amazing team and the things that they're looking to do. Um, And so I'll let Furkan, jump in and talk a little yeah. bit of self, but... Well, Furkan, t- tell us first about what problem did you set out to solve? And then maybe you know, as you tell that story, is that still the same problem you see that you're solving today? <laughs> sure thing. Uh, so we actually met my co-founder about four or five years back during, the, I guess, the start of my PhD. We were both passionate about entrepreneurship. And while searching for problems, COVID happened, and all of a sudden, there was this huge problem in front of us with 
uh, online communication. So effectively, whenever someone shares their screen or if there's four or five people on a call, um, people tend to look at themselves or not look at anyone else and basically lose all kind of physical nuance and connection with the people on, on the meeting. Um, and this was obviously a problem for the initial sector that we started in, education. But then over time, we saw that um, the problem actually was much larger than that. We were able to kind of incorporate a lot of aspects from enterprises for their hiring meetings, for their team standups, for customer su support, for sales calls, for customer success. And as it got wider and wider, um, we saw that the underlying theme was one person is communicating and a group of people are responding to that communication. And we're trying to understand if it's a positive or negative direction that they're going and then provide feedback so that they can improve that. You can tie this to any number of different ROI metrics that you're interested in. But lately, we've been kind of narrowing our scope, especially to customer-focused domains, uh, external meetings. Um, so how can a company increase their revenue or increase their customer scores by interacting in a better manner in this online medium? That's the problem that we're kind of looking into. Well, and this, I think, is particularly poignant for banks that historically have relied on that in-person relationship to read some of those cues. And I'm curious, as you approach this, what sorts of data do you need to you know, power this deeper engagement? Yes, excellent question, thanks. So uh, basically what we're doing is we're taking uh, an online meeting, meeting that's recorded in Zoom or Teams or WebEx, and we actually have partnerships with all of those major video conferencing platforms. Um, and we analyze it for three different verticals. So for visual-based cues, uh, for vocal-based cues, so based completely on the sound waves, and then for language-based cues. So uh, different metrics such as objectivity, when someone asks a question, uh, positivity, um, curiosity, sarcasm, and a whole bunch of different language cues. I want to just have this for my own like benefit. I want to <laughs> analyze myself and see if I can tell sure. when I'm snarky <laughs> and having a bad day or was up too early. Uh, I'm curious if you approach it from a bank perspective. And actually, have you worked with any banks? Yeah, so we're working with a my major bank in Turkey. Um, so it's QNB uh, Finance Bank. I think that's the literal translation into English. But uh, basically, yes, we're looking into the banking domain. Well, and what problems do you see yourself solving within the financial service space? It's exactly as you said, Jason. Basically, um, financial tech and consultancy domains, um, there's a lot of uh, human kind of connection built into that because people want to trust you. People want ha to have a great communication between um, the person that's going to be basically handling their money and basically their livelihood. Um, and then that trust is important and the kind of underlying uh, bedrock of that is effective communication. How well can someone kind of get their point across, make sure that the customer understands uh, what they're providing um, and basically be an effective communicator? I'm going to hop in because I, I think for me, what, what has been really interesting is with COVID, we know, we all know that the future of work has forever changed. Even with COVID disappearing in the future or being tamed, essentially, uh, with vaccinations, we still have just changed the way we work. And so Zoom, WebEx, it's, like, it's all there to stay. 
we'll have a hybrid work in person and work at home balance. Um, and so for me, as someone who has a team and that operates in a very decentralized way, uh, whether uh, COVID exists or not, I want to know how to better assess my my team and support them. I think that's the hardest thing that so many managers struggle with. Like you could be managing hundreds of people and you can't always pick up on emotional cues, for example. What if so-and-so is having a bad day and you just don't know? Like being able to pick up these things when I'm moving 110 miles an hour um, and have a tool that's just embedded in conversation so I can better assess my team, so I can manage them better and make sure that they are um, in a, a good emotional state, just for example, is is what really excited me about what Spike, Spike AI is doing. I think from a customer experience perspective, all the way to how you manage your team, like sky's the limit with new types of artificial intelligence. And so they are just applying this in a, a work-life setting that you know can be very beneficial to just managing a team. Well, that's exactly where I was going to go with the question I wanted to ask you around your thesis and this idea of remote first and still the need to interact. When you think of the other forces, you know, what else are you screening for when you're looking at potential solutions that play into disruptions? Which technologies do you think are going to impact the industries the fastest? Um, so, I mean, so setting aside, uh, like traditional investment approach of like embedding the team, the market, um, you know, obviously team is number one for Conan's team are insanely impressive, a team of eight PhDs, um, from Boston university, PhDs in AI, they worked at national laboratories at IBM, like they've been building this technology and have such strong expertise. So I knew, taking a, a bet on them was going to be a win no matter what. Um, like they are pushing the industry forward, which to me is important. Um, and so the way that I guess I assess opportunity is in large part, just larger trends and problems that we see existing. Again, no one foresaw COVID. And so had a co- had Spikey approached me before COVID, I don't know if I would have been as excited because I would have been like, hey, we're probably not always going to be on, on video calls. Um, however, like Techstars, for example, is a fully decentralized and remote team. So having a tool like this is integral for us and managing our operations. Um, and so uh, for me, I'm, I'm particularly excited about problems. Um, so for example, climate change, anything within the energy ecosystem, um, looking at artificial intelligence as a way to address charging infrastructure. Um, how do we optimize autonomous vehicles to be more energy efficient? Um, you know, like anything across large problem areas is what intrigues mm. me the most. Um, you know, we had companies across biotechnology in our program. So using AI to produce better drugs and eliminate waste in that space. Um, you know, I think there's just so much opportunity across um, different types of technology, using that technology, novel technology, and applying it to a particular problem. And that's exactly what Spikey was doing, using AI, developing new algorithms and advancing those algorithms, but a develop, but applying it to a very specific problem that we we're up against, which is the future of work and how our lives are changing around work. Yes. Uh, so just to add a little bit to that, I think Tricia put it fantastically. Um, just to rattle off a couple of numbers, uh, 72% of companies are now hybrid, right? So 
people don't really want to go back to the physical domain completely because they hate the the commute. They hate not being able to spend time with their families. Um, just a lot of issues kind of around that. But more than that, it's not just like inter-team relationships. Like companies need to adapt to customer-facing roles as well in this online domain. And I think that's severely lacking. Like the tools that are available right now, um, they measure things like average talk time on, on talks so that you can basically get a record of, hey, did you let other people speak? And that's basically it. Um, what we're trying to do is far beyond that so that you can actually get a personal touch to exactly what you did that was good or bad. So I'm curious, what did what has surprised you in these learnings? Is there anything completely non-obvious that in retrospect, now that you can look at the insights generated by Spikey, that you're like, wow, never would have expected that. Yeah. Um, so we started in the educational domain. Uh, we thought that it was a super good use case because obviously each professor wants to teach each individual and each individual is going to learn in a unique way. They're going to have their own personality traits attached to that. Um, but then the reason that we kind of had to shift out of there was because the market was so small and stagnant to change. Um, looking back at it, I think it's pretty obvious, but when we were kind of starting off and we were really excited by kind of the initial feedback we were getting, um, we, we built out all of the algorithms. And then thankfully along the way, we got great mentorship like from people like Tricia who kind of said, hey, um, this is great, but maybe you can actually do something even better with this. And I think that kind of pushed us to... Um, to look at different problems, to look at bigger problems than the one we were initially looking at. Now, I'm curious for your early engagement with uh, you know larger companies, how are they thinking about the business model around this? Is this around retention? Is this about you know land and expand mm -hmm. with the customers? Is it about improved experience and net promoter score? Mm -hmm. you, what's the... Mm -hmm. in, I guess one, how do your customers think about it? And how do you think they should be thinking about it that they aren't necessarily? Sure. Um, so a major airlines company is looking into using our platform in order to improve their customer reviews. Um, basically their net promoter scores and all of the metrics around that. Um, so they're transitioning into video-based conferencing with their own customers for support. Um, and they will have 800 agents that basically give 80 to 100 calls per day. So that basically comes out to around 100,000 calls per day for the whole team. Um, and it's really difficult to shift, sift through all of that data, right? Because who's going to watch 100,000 calls from the management team and say, hey, this agent did a good job at uh, promoting the company. This person didn't do such a good job and we need to improve this point. So instead of doing random sampling, which is basically what they're currently doing, um, we're going to be the company that provides them uh, more advanced intelligence on whatever went on in those calls. Fantastic. So as we're running out of time, Trisha, the next cohort that you're setting up around payments, talk to me, what kinds of companies should be applying to your, your latest program and give us a quick description of it. Yeah, so we actually closed applications. So I run two Techstars programs. One is Industries of the Future, which is um, forward-looking technologies that could disrupt industries like Spikey AI is doing. Um, and the second program that I've just launched is called Techstars Payments. It's in partnership with MoneyGram and Stellar Blockchain. 
We are looking at all things fintech, uh, specifically across emerging markets like the LATAM region. So banking as a service, DeFi, lending, payments, uh, personal financial management. We close applications um, and are engaging deeper with some of those companies in the pipeline. Um, And so we're just really excited about how fintech is disrupting emerging markets. Like for me, I get excited about all things emerging, emerging tech and emerging markets. I think um, where there is a lot of untapped opportunity are in places um, that have lacking infrastructure or, um, you know, more compliance or issues with government or currency inflation. And so when you look at LATAM or Sub-Saharan Africa, there's just so much problem, so many problems that exist and so many opportunities uh, coming out of that. And so LADAM, I think, is going to be the future of FinTech. And it's really exciting to see some of the companies coming out of there. Fantastic. Well, thank you both for taking the time to talk about the future, something we chat about quite a bit within Breaking Banks. If people want to find you, Furcon, uh, you want to share the best way to get in touch? Sure, just add me on LinkedIn. I'm pretty responsive through there. Or um, send me an email at furkan at spiky.ai. Fantastic. Thank you both. That's it for another week of the world's number one fintech podcast and radio show, Breaking Banks. This episode was produced by our US-based production team, including producer Lisbeth Severins, audio engineer Kevin Hersham, with social media support from Carla Navarra and Sylvie Johnson. If you like this episode, don't forget to tweet it out or post it on your favorite social media. We'll leave us a five-star review on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Facebook, or wherever it is that you listen to our show. Those actions help other people find our podcast. And in return, that helps us build an audience that can be supported by sponsorship so we can continue to provide you with our award-winning content every week. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you on Breaking Banks next week.